Good morning, precious church. Be turning your Bibles, if you would, to Micah chapter 2. We're going to be spending the majority of our time there this morning with the reading that Tommy gave us just a few moments ago. Uh, we, as we do so, though, I, I want to tell you that this is a big week for me. Uh, tomorrow, I'm planning on spending quite a bit of time with Tad Masteller. I, I told him it'd be good for us to spend some time together and for me to you know, tell him the, the real dirt. <laughs> so, um, if you don't want your name to come up in that conversation, I accept 20s. No, I'm kidding. No, I'm looking forward to telling him how much he's going to love everybody at the Waterford Church of Christ and how much I know you're going to love him. So pray for that. I'm excited about spending that time with him. As we look over here in Micah chapter 2, and we, I want you to look first of all, now we're going to focus on verses 1 and 2, but I want you to look with me in verse 3 as we begin. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks, nor shall you walk haughtily, for this is an evil time. I grew up with a really exceptional father. In fact, I, when I think of my dad, there's so many things that run through my mind, but one of the things that really sticks out was his patience, his mercy, his kindness. I was a young, hot-headed boy with all the emotion that you see now under control, but wasn't under control yet as a kid. I know I was hard, and and I, I, you know, they always say when you have your own kids that, that you get your payback. Well, my kids, I had my moments, but I never quite got my payback for what I put my dad through, I don't think. I remember that he helped me get my car when I was 16. And for one reason or another, I was driving his cars. I, I think it was winter. Mine had rear-wheel drive, and it was, you know, didn't get good traction and stuff. And I ended up wrecking both of his cars in the first month I had my driver's license. And the first time I walked in, and my dad just had liability insurance, I can't tell you how emblazoned in my memory it is to be out there in the driveway trying to wire together his grill, and he didn't even yell at me. I remember I walked in the house, and I threw down my keys, and, and I'm never driving again. I'm so sorry, Daddy. I'm so sorry, Daddy. And he... Well, are you all right? You know, and, and we'll, we'll fix it, son. We'll work it out. Well, that's generally what I think of when it comes to my dad. And he was that way with all three of us kids. Most of the time. He had his moments, though. In fact, it, it's so interesting that a person that's so patient, so kind, so forgiving has those isolated moments that are also tucked away and never will be forgotten in my memory when he was filled not with love but with wrath. You know, there were certain things that would push his buttons. That would just, and the reason I'm telling you this story is it's a great story and I'm never going to be able to tell it again because my sister is going to go to church with us down in Mississippi. And this is a story about my sister. It's a great one, let me tell you. We were, Lenore and I had just met in college, 
and we had planned to get married and go off that fall to preaching school. And so in the interim, we were getting married in March, so we, we were at that semester was over in December. She came up to where we were living in Washington State. She stayed with us. She lived downstairs with my sister in her bedroom during those few months before we got married. And so we were all as a family there in the home. And we, the girls would take turns doing dishes and helping cook and this, that, or the other. Lenora's 20. My sister is 17 and a senior in high school. And she has all the attitude and all of the outlook of a 17-year-old senior in high school. And we're sitting at the table. We just finished dinner. It's all of us. My three, two siblings, my mom and dad, and Lenora. Dinner's done. My daddy says from the head of the table, that was a really good meal. Thank you, girls. He says, all right, Mel, you probably should get on the dishes. It's your turn tonight. To which my sister says, I ain't doing the dishes. Now, you got to understand, in our family, that immediately caused my head and Jared's head and my mom's head to go, what did she say? It wasn't, she didn't say it in a way that, well, Dad, are you sure that it's my turn, Dad, or, you know, I'm tired. No, she just overtly said, I'm not doing the dishes. Why can't Lenora do the dishes? There's more dishes to do now that she's here. And my dad said, Lenora did the dishes last night. It's your turn to do the dishes tonight. Get to it. I ain't doing it. Okay, now, the most funny expression at the table is Lenora's through all of this. <laughs> because she's like looking for me to him, to my dad, to Melanie. She doesn't know what's going to unfold. Especially when my dad throws his chair back, stands up, and off comes the belt like a sword from the scabbard. Shishing! <laughs> and my sister says, my sister hadn't gotten a whooping, I don't think, ever in her whole life. That's just not my sister. Maybe when she was like 8, 9, 10, whatever. And she looks at my dad with this look of perplexed puzzlement. What, what are you doing? My dad Starts around the table. My sister gets up off the table and she starts around the table before him and they chase each other around the table. <laughs> Finally, he catches her and they're still chasing each other, you know, doing the, the whooping dance at 17 years old. But my daddy didn't abide rebellion. He would forgive you for anything, but he didn't abide rebellion. The greatest part of this story is Lenora is watching this. And she turns over to me and she says with horror in her voice, if he'll whip her, he'd whoop me, wouldn't he? <laughs> and I said, it's a good idea to do the dishes when you're asked. <laughs> now, I tell you that story because as loving and gentle and kind as my daddy was, my heavenly father is more. He is full of mercy. God is, not loves, God is love, John will tell us. God is love. He so loved the world, a world that didn't love him back, that he gave his son to come and to suffer, to be mistreated, mishandled, to be spat upon, to be beaten and to die alone. Because our God is love. But there are a few places in Scripture 
where God loses it. You know? I mean, in fact, we could look through the Old Testament. We're going to find it in three or four occasions. There's a couple of times when Moses has to talk God down because God loses it. And he's just going to wipe them out. And the language that we read about here in this text is pretty strong because he tells them, he says, for behold, the Lord is coming. Behold, against this family, I am devising disaster. Now, that language to me is quite intriguing. He is devising disaster. That, this is not exactly a parallel to the story I told. Because in that situation, my dad didn't have a plan for how to punish. But in this, it says God is devising. He's planning their destruction. The creator of all that is. The Lord of earth and sky, of the universe, the crafter of the solar systems, is making a plan for how to destroy them. So I think... Texts like this are very important because we know that we serve a God abundant in love, abundant in mercy, abundant in kindness and forgiveness. So we might want to pay attention to the things that cause him to step out of that natural character and the things that cause him to become so filled with wrath. My wife... She's always been a wise lady. When she looked over at me and said, if he'll whoop her, she'll whoop, he'll whoop me, won't he? You see, she was paying attention to that which pushed his button, which drove him over the edge. She'd never seen my daddy that way. She'd seen him as nothing but love and kindness and goodness and sweetness. And folks, we serve a God of love and kindness and goodness and sweetness, but we need to pay attention in Scripture and learn from the things that cause Him to be filled with wrath. And this text is one of those passages that we find in Scripture. As we go back to verse 1, He's going to really expose three things in the people of Israel that are causing him to have such wrath that he is devising, that he's making a plan, a strategy for their destruction. And it starts off in verse 1, and it says, Woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil on their beds. That morning light they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. He says, I am going to devise and plot and plan, strategize your destruction because you have been a people who devise and plot and plan evil things. Notice he says, they devise iniquity and they work out evil on their beds. That means they're just sitting around, laying there, thinking of evil things to do. They're planning evil. And I want to be very clear about this. Everybody does evil. Everybody does wrong. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody falls short, whatever terminology you want to use. But there is a difference between doing wrong and planning to do wrong. A big difference. 
You see, we fall short. We give in to weakness. But this is not talking about weakness. This is talking about intentional, devised wrongdoing. And God won't tolerate it. God won't tolerate it. You can live your life and make it to heaven. I've told you this before. A little bit of faith will get your soul to heaven. But a great faith will bring heaven to your soul. But a little bit of faith will because here's the thing. The person who has a sincere, honest heart who says, Lord, even if you said it a hundred thousand times, but you say it all truth, Lord, I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to fall in that way again. And you intend not to, even though you probably will. When you do, there's mercy. But not when you say, I'm going to do what I want to do, and you plan, and you divide. You see, one is weakness, the other one's just evil. And God says, you are planning, you are devising, we're going to see who has a better strategy. And I'll tell you who it isn't. It isn't evil men who can outthink God. You know, it's like I, I've always loved football. I love most sports. I enjoy the competition. But I love football because to me, it's just got the most defined type of strategy. I know basketball strategy, baseball strategy. But in football, they've got to make out plays and they've got to have defensive plays and offensive plays. And sure enough, oftentimes, it's the one with the best strategy with the best design plans. And I've seen teams win that frankly didn't have the athletes to win. Because uh, this little Everest Collegiate Academy, a little Catholic school up in Clarkston, they're a football powerhouse. I mean, they make it deep into the playoffs. Every, they're the bane of our existence at Oakland Christian. They ended Sess High School football career. And that team that year had 15 players. Four kids on the bench. That's it. They were playing teams with 25 and 35 players. And they weren't very big. You know how they won? Superior strategy. That's why their coach has been the Michigan coach of the year. At least once. I think maybe twice. And God's trying to explain to these evildoers. You're devising... You're laying on your bed, devising, planning, but I'm planning too. Folks, just like Lenora turned over and had a realization, I, I, I don't want to do this. We need to, you cannot outplan, outthink, or trick God. You can't do it. He says they plotted and they planned evil. When people today intend to sin, it is the worst, most heinous type of evil to plan it. When I was in high school, I had a friend who was of a Calvinistic religious persuasion. And I remember, you know, you're tempted by things, you and your friends in high school. And we were, when we were wrestling with to, do, to go those places our parents wouldn't want us to go or be in those environments or whatever it may be, I wrestled mightily. This person didn't wrestle at all. He said, well, I can't be lost anyway. Because he believed in once saved, always saved. And I look at that, and that in and of itself, this text in and of itself says, that can't be true. 
Because God doesn't tolerate the intent to sin. He tolerates sin. He forgives sin. But not the intent. Not the intent. He says, you have devised evil, evil plans. We look in Ephesians chapter 4, 14 and 15, and it says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness with which they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up into all things who is the head, Jesus Christ. This idea of speaking the truth in love is imperative to being able to be truthful both in what we present to other people, but being truthful in who we are in our hearts. He says, matured, as matured believers, you're not tossed to and fro. You have to be a people who are honest with others, God, and with yourself. You see, the Christian life is as much about intent, honest intent, as it is about action, maybe even more so. Maybe even more so. We look in verse 2 of the text and it says, They covet fields and take them by violence, also houses, and seize them, so that they may oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Now there are really two things that he condemns here. First of all, they coveted the possession of others. They coveted those possessions. There is not enough discussion in the church about the importance, the spiritual importance of being grateful and content. That We live in a society very similar to some that we read of in Scripture because of affluence, because of the fact that, you know, really all of us have more than, I mean, the, the collection of things and resources in this room probably would match in total the resources of entire countries thousands of years ago. I mean, think about that. It's incredible what we have. And I'm grateful to the Lord for the affluence that we all enjoy. But we have to be careful because it's so strange. But sometimes when you have what people all around the world would desperately want, you appreciate it less. Isn't that interesting? We, we appreciate it. it. It's so funny because now I have an Apple Watch, and that thing is, is pretty amazing, but I just, you know, it's a watch, and I don't do everything that it's capable of doing and all of that. But I was thinking about it the other day. I remembered back in the late 1970s, my parents had bought me a digital watch. It was a big thing then. And all it had was the numbers. That's all it did. And you had to, it was the kind before they had the grayscale, they had to light up. Remember, they would have to, so you had to push a button so it would light up and show you the time. And I thought, I mean, I showed that to everybody. Oh, <laughs> that was, maybe that's when I fell in love with watches. I don't know. But I walked around and showed it to everybody. And it was a hundred times more simple than this digital watch that we now have but I appreciated it a hundred times more. Isn't that odd? I mean, it's not even as good as what we have now. Not even close. 
But that's the danger of affluence. Is sometimes the most covetous, dissatisfied people are the people who have more than almost anybody else. Isn't that strange? He says, but you, and because you see what it does is if people are covetous, it is the greatest expression of a lack of gratitude that can possibly be extended. You know, when you, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. My kids were better than this for the most part, but I've known folks who give their kids a present and mom and dad saved for it and bought it for Christmas and then they get it and it's not exactly what they want because it's not exactly what the other kids have, you know? That hurts. That hurts the gift giver. Why? Because it just says, it made the gift worth nothing because it's not appreciated. And when we look to what other people have and are consumed with envy and jealousy, what does that say to our God who gave us everything we have? It says, well, are you ever going to be sad? Can I ever do enough? And the truth is he never could. Because when people are consumed with covetousness, there is no possession that will ever, ever satisfy them. It will never satisfy them. You see, this would include so many things. Stealing, both illegally and legally. You know, there are ways to legally steal from people to do them wrong. There are ways to take advantage of people. That's the height of selfishness. And we look over in Exodus chapter 20, verses 15 through 17, and this is the law that they lived under, under the Old Commandment, and the Ten Commandments that were given through Moses. Verse 15, it says, You shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Verse 17, You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shouldn't covet your neighbor's wife. You shouldn't covet his manservant or his maidservant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's or anything that is your neighbor's. He says, you need to be a people who are content and grateful. God will not tolerate a completely covetous, ungrateful heart. And then in the text, he continues with, in verse 2, by saying, And the houses, and they seize them, so they oppress a man in his house, a man and his inheritance. They cheated, they oppressed their fellow man. You know, in Scripture, there's so much dealing with how we're supposed to be toward other human beings. And I, I, I'm going to say, we need to hear this in this time too. Not only about covetousness because of our affluence, but because of our ridiculous political process, we need to hear that we're supposed to be a people who love other people. Because I hear a whole lot of bitterness and hatred and anger and wrath coming from not the lips of Christians as much as the fingers of Christians. It must stop. It must stop. Because whatever we say, that doesn't mean we're weak. That doesn't mean we don't stand up. That doesn't mean we don't. We, it just means that Christians are supposed to have class. You understand? 
Christians are supposed to have some sense of love that communicates in everything we say. And if you can't say it lovingly, you don't need to say it. You don't need to say it. But when we bully and treat people unkindly, and we, the Bible calls it oppressing other people. Folks, we, we don't need to do that. Because as we read over in Matthew chapter 22, and we know this text, it's so familiar. It's the core of everything we are and everything we believe. We're in verse 37, Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And these two commandments hang, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You see, if we don't get those two things right, it doesn't matter what our doctrine is. It doesn't matter how much we give or how well we attend. It doesn't matter if we can teach well or preach well or lead songs or serve in any other way, he says, on these two commandments hang everything. Folks, we have to love the Lord our God first. But before anything else matters, we have to love other people as we love ourselves. Now, that's hard to do, but we at least have to have it as our intent. We at least have to be trying to do it. We have to be striving to love other people. We're not permitted to hate anybody. Except the devil. You want somebody to hate? He's a good target for hate. But people, people are the very thing that God desires above all. Above all. We have to love the Lord our God and love our neighbors, not oppress them, not mistreat them, not cheat them. And so God tells them plainly here in Micah 2, there are very few things that make me snap, but these things do. When you plot and plan evil, when you're ungrateful and you covet And when you cheat and oppress others, God says, I have no tolerance for it. And I'll tell you, my daddy, he's only five foot seven and a half. But when he got the look in his eye, and that, I mean, he should have been a swordsman because that's like what it was like. Shishing. It was just as terrifying as somebody drawing a sword. I mean, I'm six foot two and a half. And when my daddy got in that mode, I was a trembling little lamb, you know. What about when the creator of all is filled with wrath? Well, here's the beautiful thing. You don't ever have to worry about it. If you live your life sincerely, you don't plan to do evil. You don't scheme and plot. That was the problem with the Pharisees. Jesus said, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. You're like whitewashed tombs that on the surface you look nice, but inside you're filled with dead men's bones. See, that's the essence of hypocrisy. To plan evil, but to pretend that you don't. 
See, but it's easy to know that you're not doing that. I mean, we all know our hearts. Just honestly say, Lord, I'm going to try my best and try your best. Then you don't have to be afraid of the divine sword coming out of the scabbard. Then be satisfied. Be grateful. Count your blessings. And when someone else does well, it's always been so intriguing to me how even in the church we have these jealousies and these envies. So people will sometimes look down upon others. Well, that, did you see the kind of, how the, that person flaunts the, I, I don't think most believers try to flaunt what they have. And there will always be p- people who have maybe a, a little more expensive suit than I wear or car than I drive. And, but you know what? I've got pretty decent suits and a pretty decent car. Better than ever used, I used to have and better probably than I ever thought I would, right? We don't need to look so much at what other people have. We need to look at what God has given us. And when we do, we don't have to worry about the divine scabbard and the sword being pulled. And then we need to just try to treat people well. Watch what we say. Treat others with kindness and care about other people. And sometimes it takes a while to learn. I mean, it's easy to care about some people. It's more difficult to care about others. But again, in all of this, the real key is what are we trying to be? We don't talk about God's wrath a lot in the church anymore. It's just not an in vogue topic, right? But you can't really appreciate how kind and loving and good he is. Unless you've seen this side of him too. Because you see, it's not really kindness and love and mercy and peacefulness when the person's just a pushover. My daddy was not a pushover. And our God's not a pushover. This morning as you look into your own heart, if you see some things there that need to be corrected, here's the thing. God is always willing to put the sword back in the scabbard when men humble their hearts. You need to humble your heart today. Don't delay. Don't wait. Come right now as we stand and we sit.